Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What, as they say, is up? <laughs> it's good to be here. Oh, yeah. Hey, and uh, before we before we dive into Doctrine and Covenants 2728, as I was remembering there's a few things I wish I could almost kind of go back and fix or or add or or whatever the case may be. When we were talking quite a few episodes back, we were talking about the anger of the Lord and and it, it, comparing his nose like Pinocchio. When he got angry, his nose would get long. I think I said that actually backwards. Usually the the the, the longer the nose, the more patient he was and the shorter the nose. Not not that it meant much, but it, it just just something that was kind of driving me crazy I wanted to correct. Um, but then also last week we were talking about the washing of the feet, dusting off the feet in the last episode. And, and there was something significant there that I wanted to hit on that I, that, that I kind of left out that I, would, I thought we would include right here at the start of this one. And when Abraham is waiting out outside of Sabbath and Gora and he has the visitors come, the strangers, to, to where his tent is, and he rushes and, and, and says, fetch the water and the basin and, and let's wash your feet. And Abraham was a man of, of, of wealth, a man of power. Uh, most likely he had, he had servants that would wash his feet. And in the New Testament, we see that example when the Savior is washing Peter's feet. And when the Savior washes Peter's feet, Peter's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa this is backwards. I am your servant. I, if anything, I should be washing your feet. And Christ says, you don't get it. It's not, it's not that you're a guest here in my home for, for this meal that we're having tonight. He says, he clarifies, Jesus tells him, if you want to go into my father's house, then I must wash your feet. And, and then Christ tells him that he is the servant. And if we are the, the greatest in the kingdom is the one that serves, Christ is telling him, I am my father's servant. This is about coming into my father's house, not about tonight. And, and he is his father's servant. I thought it was kind of interesting, just a little thing I wanted to slide in there. Cool. Cool. All right. Hold on. Before we get started, too, um, just want to remind you, if you have questions or comments, we've gotten a couple comments. None of them really have yet anything to do with any of the things we're talking about. Um, but we, uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you, whether it be about the show or, or how you found the show, what's going on, how you're doing, or just reach out and say something. All right. Doctrine and Covenants, section 27 through 28. Right off the bat, the Lord... Okay, so I guess let's give us a little bit of context. Joseph Smith just got out of jail. And this is right after the church has been organized, 1830. Emma Smith was, was baptized a few weeks back. And she was waiting for Joseph Smith to get out to be able to confirm her. And, and he was charged with treasure hunting. Um, Wait, that's, a, that's a crime? <laughs> apparently. 
saying saying that you you can find treasure i guess more kind of a fraud idea that that you're telling people that you you have this gift for finding treasure and and then misleading them into uh, into treasure hunting so so treasure hunting like charges but he was acquitted of the charges so it kind of kind of weird little deal happening here um, but he's he's acquitted he's released so a couple of weeks have gone by and he's coming back and now he's going to confirm uh, Emma member and confer the gift of the Holy Ghost upon her. And to, to set up for this occasion, Joseph Smith is on his way to the store to go buy some wine for the sacrament so that they can they can have the sacrament at the time that they're going to confer, to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost to Emma. On his way, he's intercepted by an angel. And, and it's not just saying any, any angel or just a person on the street, but it says a heavenly messenger, right? And this heavenly messenger stops him and, and gives him some advice and, and says, you know what? Don't buy strong drink or wine from your enemies, which, which sounds like pretty solid advice if, if you're buying something that can, that, that can have an impact on you, such as alcohol. Maybe you shouldn't be buying it from your enemies. And the Lord reveals some truth to Joseph Smith that the first thing I wanted to touch on in this is it says, it mattereth not what you use for the sacrament if you do it with an eye single to my glory. And that's, I I think that qualifier right there at the end, if you do it with an eye single to my glory is is really the the kicker on this. Because if you're you're cracking out a, a box of, of Teddy Grahams because you think it's going to be kind of funny or or different to kind of mix things up a little bit or or get people to chuckle, or you know what it was when when I was um when I was a kid we had a priest that was the bishop's son. I don't know if you ever remember the show Perfect Strangers it used to be on TGIF. Yeah, for sure. And he had Balky, right? Kind of his accent. I'm not sure where Balky's even from. He, he would. I don't remember now. <laughs> he he. He would he would bless the sacrament in his best Balky impersonation, and and the the bishop was not very happy with him at, at all, right? So yes, you, you can do things a little bit different, and you don't necessarily need to have bread. You don't necessarily need to have um, wine. In this case, we we learned that instead of wine, it's it's more than all right to use water. But the kicker is, as long as the reason why you're doing it or what you're doing it is, if you're still doing it with an eye single to His glory. And we want to make sure when we're doing the sacrament that that is the focus, that we're not focusing on on something else, right? And, and you see the deacons, and usually they're all wearing their white shirts and ties. And, and it's not like it's written anywhere in a hard code, you have to wear this or you have to do it this way. But more than anything, I think the purpose is try to do it in such a way that you're not distracting away from the purpose, that, that, that the focus can still be on the Lord. And I think we've even had, you know, discussions about this in the past. The idea is—is it—is it all right to take the sacrament with your left hand? Sure. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it is interesting because, again, like I—I I even understand why, you know, you know, we're told when we're young, you know what I mean, like take it, you know, eat it with the appropriate hand or, or eat it with the right hand. And it again, it's just—it's the idea of like be deliberate in what it is that you're doing and focus on, you know what I mean? Like be, be paying attention to what it is, why you're taking the sacrament. You know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's all kinds of reasons that have to go with it, even if it wasn't necessarily a doctrinal thing. 
but the, but kind of like the Jews all throughout the you know New Testament ended up getting so hung up about those types of things that they lost track of all of the other things. You know what I mean? The, the meanings behind a lot of that stuff. Exactly. Let's not focus so much on everything else and really what's the purpose of what we're doing and how how do we make that purpose stand out for us? Yes. Perfect. Going into this uh, this this strong wine that, that Joseph Smith is told not to purchase, uh, not to purchase. He says, you know, you can kind of make it on your own or, or provide your own sacrament, but this is something that you probably shouldn't be pur- purchasing from your enemies. Now, the Lord is going to say something that's a little bit interesting here in verse 5. He says, Behold, this is wisdom in me, wherefore marvel not. And and when the Lord's saying marvel not, it's it's like it's like he's saying, try not to be too surprised by this. Like I I don't know. I don't if, if the Lord's saying marvel not, then it's almost like setting me up for you're going to be amazed at what I say next. Mm. Try not try not to be too surprised at what I say next. So he says, Marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. And with Moroni, and, and it's kind of interesting. So now the Lord's going to go through this whole section mentioning all of these buddies like, hey, I'm going to come here with you on earth in my resurrected body. And, and I'm not sure if the marvel not is intended for the fact that he is drinking the fruit of the vine in, in a resurrected body. The idea that, you know, does God have to eat or does he not eat? Is that mm. what he means by marvel not? Or does he mean marvel not by the fact that he's about to just list a bunch of, I, I don't know, can, can, can you call them A-listers in, in scripture history? <laughs> A-listers? I mean, he's dropping these names. I'm going to come with Moroni. Yep. I'm going to come with um, with Elijah. I'm yep. going to come with John the Baptist. I mean, these so far are all A-listers, I guess. <laughs> he's, I don't know, he, he makes it sound like, this 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 fun club of you know all of these great people that he hangs out with, and and he's bringing them here to to share a drink with with the prophet is what he's saying, and 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 then he prefaces it with marvel not, and I'm like wait a second how can I not marvel? Did the Lord not just say? I mean it's pretty marvelous. Yeah yeah here I the hour will come when I'm going to come share a few drinks with you guys. That's awesome. And what 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 is the Lord's take on 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 drinking? I mean, this is, it's good. It's, this is always, this is a, this is a good discussion, I think, to, to always have and, and understand the idea behind certain commandments. But, you know, I mean, the word of wisdom is always a really interesting, it's, it's always an interesting one to get various people's, you know, various different takes on. Right. And, and the word of wisdom, initially as it's it's released and it's a revelation, it it is a word of wisdom or counsel, right? It's not really put forth as a commandment. But we believe in in modern revelation and we believe in prophets. And and for us, it's not something that we have to kind of stew on or wonder or stay confused about because, because the original context wasn't quite so clear. We have the blessing of having modern prophets to be able to clarify, uh, to, to be able to amend it or, or make it more clear to our eyes as we look at it. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in the prophets and how they've clarified, you know, don't, don't drink at all, right? And, and we've, we've kind of come through this evolution of the church where this time where they, they were drinking wine for the sacrament or they were making their own wine or there were acceptable times to do it to where they say, you know what, 
And in fact, I think it says it even better in Doctrine and Covenant section 89 when it, when it prefaces it, due to the cunning of men and, and some of the things that are going to come, it, not necessarily right now, but because of the future, because of what's going to happen, it's a good idea that we cut this out now. Yep. And, and there is a difference, I think, between what they were doing then and the spirits and alcohol and, and how we use those in our time today. I do kind of want to just bring up something that we've even talked about before because, again, like I know that I know that it's kind of like a fun, common thing to say like, oh, there's there was there was just grape juice that that Jesus was drinking and not wine. And I've always been like, oh, okay, I guess I guess maybe that makes sense. But I don't know. What's your take on that? Was it just grape juice or? That's a great question. And I honestly, in, in, in all cases, I think it's impossible to say, but I would say there is clear evidence that it wasn't just grape juice. And not to say that grape juice wasn't called wine, because we do have instances where, where grape juice, when it's prepared, if they boiled it before they prepared it, they could preserve it without it fermenting. Or if it did ferment, they could take the wine and they could boil the alcohol out of it and still drink the wine without having that intoxicating effect. That being said... There's clear evidence in the scriptures. When you talk about the Nephites delivering strong drink to the Lamanites, they didn't give it to them as a gift saying, hey, we're giving this to you because we know you like strong drink. They're saying, hey, I stole this from the Nephites. This is their drink. And it, 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 Lamanites, if they, if they knew it was liquor, if, well, let me say it this way. If they knew it came from the Nephites and they knew the Nephites didn't drink, they would have no reason to suspect that this was good liquor when they got it, right? And you look at the return exchange. When the Lamanites would send alcohol back to the Nephites, the Nephites would have it tested first. You don't have it tested if you're just going to pour it down the drain and not drink it. You, you have it tested because you, you, you plan on ingesting it or drinking it. And you see... I, there's plenty of instances or cases when wine, uh, as much as you want to try to explain it away or describe it differently, wine has been ingested in the Old Testament yeah. and the New Testament. I think that I think that uh, it's not that um, hard to understand why it probably wasn't as big of an issue throughout the history of time as it would be in like the modern day that we live in. Maybe, maybe even more so than Joseph Smith's time too. You know, when when the word of wisdom was given, because again, at the time, like you said, a lot of that was given with wisdom towards the future, like kind of with an eye towards the future. And Joseph Smith's time, uh, you didn't have people getting plastered and driving cars around, you know, and and crashing, you know, into people also driving or things like that. You know, what I mean, it's like there's so many. There's so many other dangers with it, and um, and kind of like you've mentioned in the past too. It's like the the era that we live in right now is such a time of like excess that you know. And and again, like I mean, you'd probably be able to explain it better than me. But it just seems like it seems like when the council was given early on, it was very much more looking forward to the time that we live in and the problems that any sort of substance abuse you know, you know, have on families and, and individuals. Yeah, great points. My, my daughter right now, she's got her learner's permit. 
And so my, my, my wife and I are, are trying to take time and teach her how to drive and spend the time behind the wheel with her. And I pulled all of my kids together and I said, look, I'm quite a bit bigger than, than all my kids by, by like a hundred pounds. It's sad. But I, I, I tell them, imagine if I were to run as fast as I, I could and just hit you as hard as I could. How, how would that feel? Right. What if, what if instead of me, I were to grab a piece of metal that weighed 2000 pounds and then faster than I could run, just threw them and hit them with that. Like, like, like a missile, right? What kind of damage would that do? And they're like, oh man, that would be devastating, right? You know, we're, we're, we're in the time of superheroes and you think and imagine these big old rocks are still coming and hitting you. And, and they think it's kind of fantastic or, or, you know, just wild and crazy. But then I say, okay, now think about that. That's what happens when you're behind the wheel of those vehicles. You're operating this, this vehicle the steel and you're many times going faster than what a person can run and and carrying all that weight behind you it doesn't take much you you turn and you hit somebody or you hit something or you hit you know you can do some serious damage pretty quick and and I don't think they had that kind of responsibility at their hands for for one little mess up could create so much damage doing it intoxicated like like we can now and and taking it a little bit out of uh a little bit more into our modern times, I guess, to kind of interpret it and look at it differently. The The U.S. government says that alcohol is the most common drug used among adults in the U.S. And I thought that was interesting that they would call alcohol a drug. And, and usually we kind of associate drugs as one thing, drugs and alcohol, we group them together. But for them to actually call it a, a mind-altering or a, a drug, I, I thought put that a little bit in perspective for me. It's linked with disorders in young adults as they're developing. If they if they drink as, as youth, it causes issues that way. Obviously, you've got problems with society, broken homes, violence. According to Harvard, alcohol plays a role in one out of three violent crimes. And the cost of society, or the cost on society of alcohol abuse totals $249 billion a year and takes 10,000 lives every year from alcohol-related car accidents. So the, the cost of alcohol on society, in, in my mind, far outweighs any, any small benefit we, we get. I mean, if it, if it means finding a different way to, to divert with your friends or to pass time, and, and that would get me 10,000 more lives or, or a lot less broken homes or domestic disputes or, or fewer deaths in car accidents. I, I can see the wisdom of the Lord and saying, you know what, let's, let's try to nip this and, and get ahead of it and say, let's just do what we can to, to eliminate these problems. Cool. Yeah. And if I, <laughs> I'm sorry, let me, let me say this. I thought this was fascinating last year. The, the insurance from, from all over the United States, they get together and they talk about, you know, the accidents and, and the safest drivers. And when I think of Utah drivers, I don't typically think of us as, as the safest drivers. But, but Utah ranked number one as the safest place no to drive. Way. Yeah, number one in the, in the United States for safest place to drive. And, and driving around these roads in Utah, I cannot imagine it's because people are actually that safe. I have to attribute that 
to the fact that I don't think we have as we're many people. We, we're driving a lot more sober. Oh my gosh! Honestly, any... Utah has the worst drivers. <laughs> I think I've driven we're... in a lot of places, man. They're terrible. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're sober makes it even more inexcusable, actually. For how terrible. <laughs> well, and there's been and there's been some interesting studies talking about even regular use of alcohol in moderation. I mean, even even a single cup a day, and, and for a long time, that's been touted as something for for the benefit of health, for heart health. And, and now they're looking at it a little bit more critically. There's a couple articles published in the scientific journals last year that even as few as one one glass of, of wine a day could cause uh, some art, um, arterial fibrillation, some problems with, with the heart that, that they hadn't noticed before. So there's just some interesting advice out there, and, and I, I don't want to spend too much time yeah, talking on that. We can move on. But I, I, I would say this. <laughs> When, when we talk about Christ coming, and he says, marvel not that I say this, and, and, and starting out, I kind of put this in this light, well, I would marvel if he's saying that he's coming here just to drink with a bunch of buddies, but, but I, I, I don't know that that's the case. And when he says marvel not about this, this is in context of the sacrament. When Joseph Smith is getting the, the wine together to bring this back in, he's, he's coming to, to participate in the sacrament, and he says, do not marvel if I start coming and joining in the sacrament with you. The hour is soon at hand. And who knows? You know, in, in the Salt Lake Temple and the Holy of Holies, you've got Thursdays dedicated to, to the Quorum of the Twelve getting together, and, and, and they have the sacrament. And, and maybe maybe we have visitors that come and spend time with it, and, and that's something that is not not discussed, or we don't know. Who knows, right? But maybe maybe the Lord, in context of of sacrament bringing us together, not so much in in context of 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 having a wild time, but in the wisdom of the Lord, there is a way that makes this work. Awesome. Okay, clothed in the armor of God. Towards the end of here, we talk about putting on, you know, girding up your loins and putting on the breastplate, the, the breastplate and the shield and the sword, and, and this is something that we've talked about a long time, even in primary, and, and we have the mock-ups and the displays. And as I was reading this, I, I kind of thought about this a little bit differently. When you're talking about girding up the loins, and, and first you have to wonder what what in the world are loins to begin with? It's not something we here commonly we use. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going anywhere crazy with this. What? <laughs> just, just wrapping it around your waist, honestly, Whatever. and then, and then the breastplate. You're wrapping that around you, and the helmet. You're encasing and wrapping, and and I'm just seeing this this idea of clothing or wrapping, and I can't help but think of the Garden of Eden when they sin, and they find themselves naked. And then the Lord clothes them by, by, by wrapping them up with these coats of skin. And this idea that's perpetuated in the New Testament that we're clothed in mortality, but when we die, we'll be clothed upon, our spirits will be clothed again and clothed upon with this immortality. And this idea that the Lord is clothing us with, with salvation, with, with righteousness, with truth. And I keep thinking of this image of, of clothed versus not clothed and how you feel, this idea of vulnerability and exposed, this nakedness. No, Nobody wants to, yeah, I don't know. Do you ever have those dreams you stand up in front of people, you go to work and you realize you're wearing your underwear or even worse, nothing at all? I always have dreams where my teeth are falling out. 
Oh, those are those are bad dreams too. I know. I'm never naked in those. All my teeth just fall out though. I think I'd rather have dreams where I'm just naked walking around. Those aren't comfortable dreams. I don't uh, know. Whatever. Not everyone has them, but but it is this idea that you're 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 unprepared or you're exposed and you feel embarrassed, you feel shame. And and it's really what sin's doing. I mean, you make that comparison with the Garden of Eden. You take of the fruit, and now all of a sudden you feel exposed. You did something that you know you're going to have to account for, and it's uncomfortable to stand in front of people and give them that accounting when you're naked, when you're not you you're laid out there. And armor is doing the same thing if you go to war. I mean, can you imagine? You don't know what your chances of survival are. You're going to go rush this other army, and you're going to be fighting. How how confident would you feel if you look around and everyone around you has, has swords, chest plates, shields, helmets, and they look at the enemy line and they all have the same thing, and then you're standing there in just your regular cloth, right? And you're like, uh, this this is not going to go well for me. So this idea that the Lord is clothing us with these things, the salvation, his truth, his word, these things, the gospel of peace, they are preparing us, strengthening us, and helping us feel less vulnerable and less exposed. All right, let's move to Doctrine and Covenants section 28. This section is addressed to Oliver Cowdery, and there's some issues that the Lord's, uh, well, the Lord and Joseph Smith kind of have with Oliver Cowdery and some of the things that he's been bringing up. It's about Hiram Page, but it's more actually getting to what what's going on with Oliver Cowdery. So let's start. Hiram Page, he's one of the eight witnesses. And at this time, early on, he's, he's mar- he marries um, one of the Whitmer sisters, one of the Whitmer girls. And he's got a stone that he found, a black stone that he looks in, and it gives him revelations. And he's, he's able to look into it, and he starts giving these revelations about where Zion is going to be built or how Zion is going to be built. The specific revelations themselves were not preserved. We don't know exactly what he was saying, but Oliver Cowdery was buying into it and he believed it. And so he was starting to teach Hiram Page's revelations and get behind them. And this was a little bit confusing at the time and a little bit disconcerting for for Joseph Smith at the early days of the church to try to figure out what the Lord has in mind or is this how the Lord works? He calls several different prophets and just keeps inspiring everybody in this way. So Joseph Smith takes it to the Lord, receives this revelation, kind of correcting the course and saying there is one prophet that receives revelation for the church. And then he brings it to the church and by common consent, everybody sustains him as the prophet and revelator for the church and that he is the only one that should be getting that direction and and guiding the church. Hiram Page takes it really well. He destroys the stone, gets or gets rid of the stone. He he falls in line and says, "Okay, I I I'm 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 on board. I'm okay with that. If the Lord says that that's from the devil, then I'm going to let it go, and I'm not going to have anything else to do with it. And the Lord commands Hiram Oliver particularly to to address this with Hiram Page and to kind of resolve the issue here. But part of the underlying issue is that. Again, this happens 1830, not too long after the church is restored. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 37, we talked about that not too long ago. It says, if if you're going to be baptized into the church, that you must bring your, your works to, to manifest by your works that you have repented, that you've received that, that remission of your sins. 
And Oliver Cowdery wrote a letter to Joseph Smith saying that there was an error in the text. He says, this is wrong. If you're telling people they have to manifest by their works that they have received this, this is going to introduce priestcraft into the church. And in the letter, Oliver Cowdery even goes as far as to say, I command you in the name of the Lord to fix it. So, so who's, who's commanding who and how does this work? And, and this is really the heart of this issue is Joseph Smith is dealing with Hiram Page as he's dealing with Oliver Cowdery, and he's trying to get a handle on things and fix it. And ultimately, here he is. He's turning to the Lord, and the Lord is, is kind of setting the record straight. And in the discussion, I mean, Joseph Smith saying, yeah, yeah, if, if this was me that was writing it, sure, let's have that debate and let's talk about it. But I can't change the words because they're God's words, not my words. And as you look at it, clearly it's not pushing priestcraft. And I, I don't know, we've said this a few times, but as, t- as President Monson said over and over again, the wisdom of God sometimes appears as foolishness to man. But the single greatest lesson we can learn is that when, a man, when God speaks and a man listens, that man will always be right. And in this case, God spoke, and sometimes we look at it, and it's so easy to try to dismiss it or say, no, they, they screwed up, they messed up, because we see it differently. But we got to stop and realize, are we challenging the Lord, or who are we challenging? What are we challenging? And do we fully understand what's going on here? All right. Any any last thoughts on the subject, Nate? Um, oh, I think you covered that as about as thoroughly as it could be for our, <laughs> for what we're doing. Sweet. I just um, I find I find it kind of nice how the way he says, "Speak not by or well, write not by way of commandment, but by wisdom." If, if you're not the one that's receiving commandments for the church, maybe don't be sitting there writing out, this is what we have to do, this is what we have to do, but use your wisdom in interpreting the commandments the Lord has already given. I do. That actually, that is that is actually something, I mean, if, if I think we still have a little bit of time. I had a conversation with somebody um, in an old ward of mine about the idea that what would you do if somebody basically came forward and saying, okay, well, God now came to me and said, you know, I am going to, uh, the church has gone astray and I need to, I, I'm the one that's going to be um, taking over from here. It's kind of like a weird question. And, and it, I thought to myself, like, uh, you know, what would I do? Would I just, would I just be able to just with a blanket say, nope, can't possibly be true? Would I, would I welcome it as like, cool, you know, God has spoken to people. I believe God has spoken to people. So I'm just going to accept it and also, and then just go along with it, you know? And I think where I came out is like, no, I don't think I would do either of those things. Right. I think that there is something to be said for, well, you know, I believe that that's just not the process of things. And we've also been told though, that it's like, cool, pray about it. You know what I mean? Like, cool. Ask like there's what 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 harm does it do to say is there any truth to what i'm hearing about this and we believe that that god would give us an answer to that and i could only assume especially if you know if this person was you know pulling people with him that it would be something that you know i'm sure god would want to tell us you know what's going on in that case you know, even though I think I think my answer would be I would be skeptical. So when I hear, you know, stories like this, I think this is at a time where people don't know that process, you know, 
or, or not 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 know, but aren't as familiar and as confident in the process, right? And what a way for Satan to be able to kind of like try to creep his way in to go, cool, Joseph Smith is receiving revelation through seer stones. Why don't I try to find somebody else who is at least sincere, you know what I mean? And try to try to kind of deceive that person in a similar way that true revelation is being given to man at the time, right? And yeah. so, you know, I think I think the things that I at least pull from that is like, cool, Satan is sneaky and is very good at, at trying to deceive people in ways that, that otherwise would potentially look righteous, you know? And then at the same time, it's also a good lesson in just the process of things. Like, yes, we receive revelation for ourselves. Yes, we receive revelation for our families. Specific callings, we are entitled to receive revelations for those that we are stewards over. And and now that we have, you know, you know, decades worth of being able to look at the process of this, it's a lot easier for us to know. Like, okay, don't be, don't be deceived by, you know, people s- claiming to be receiving revelation for, for you know people that they shouldn't be receiving revelation for, I guess. Right. And when they say to in conference, how do they put it? Doubt your doubts before you, you know, it's okay to question, but but maybe begin by questioning your questions and and, and try to wonder and honestly or at least dig just into be it. fair. You know what I mean? The thing is, it's like, I agree with you. The doubt your doubts thing can sometimes, I think, come across as kind of like dismissive. And I always feel bad when, when it does come across as dismissive because you know there are there are things that i have questions about you know there are things that a lot of people that are sincere have have real questions about right and for me it's it's i guess i wish it was as easy as just like you know but i but again i don't think that elder uchtdorf was saying only doubt your doubts but i think it the idea was just be fair you know yeah you know be fair with your doubts and also and also be fair with the things that you have been taught and have and have been given a reason to believe over time. You know, give give fairness, give equal give equal attention. You know, to both at least. You know, be be as critical with your doubts as you are with your faith. That's a good point, and I don't know that you can be a true convert of of Christ and turn to Him without having questions. Oh, I, I I mean, I hope. I hope that then that because I hope then that means that we're doing it right, right? Like, I hope that that's the case because again, like if if it truly is like a constant process of continually becoming converted and reconverted, it's like is why I love having these discussions and I love doing these things is because it is this it doesn't ever feel like a finish line to me at least in this life, right? I, to, to me, I look at it the 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 verse asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find is repeated so many times in the scriptures. Why, why would you ever ask if you didn't have a question to begin with? And, and sometimes I wonder if the Lord is not intentionally vague or intentionally confusing just to kind of leave it on the line for us and, as a conversation starter. Like, where, where do we go to the Lord? Where do we pray most if it's not when we need something or we have a question about something? And when he puts something out there on the line and, and gives us that opportunity to ask him and come to him, that's what builds the relationship. 
if you didn't have those questions, if you didn't have that, that, that crisis, if you weren't pouring out your heart trying to get to know him, at what other point do you feel like you're exposing your soul to him and he is reaching out and, and helping you understand him a little bit better? So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Satan does want to take advantage of that. I mean, when you're talking about a church that pushes personal revelation and the idea that not just a prophet, but everybody is entitled to communicate with God and not only is entitled to, but encouraged to go and seek that, that inspiration, that revelation. How do you draw that line? Particularly when the devil comes and appears as an angel of light. Exactly. And, and to that point, I guess the thing is, is like, I think, I think this is where we have to be careful and, and, and kind of like you're saying, and kind of like the, the, the bigger point of the doubt your doubts thing again, like that, that line specifically sometimes feels a little dismissive for me, but, but there's, there's something amazing in that line, which is also going like, maybe not maybe not it's not doubt your doubts but know yourself like know know your weaknesses know where you tend to have skepticism know where you tend to have you know what i mean like know know your weaknesses right because in theory like if we if we know our weaknesses you can only imagine you know the devil has spent you know generations of time learning them too and for some people their weakness might be I see I see a problem in how the church handles blank. Therefore, that's an easy target for the adversary to come and say, I'm going to help you receive some personal revelation that actually applies to everybody that just happens to be about maybe something that you disagree with culturally in the church or that you disagree with doctrinally in the church, right? Because... Because, again, it's still attacking a weakness, but it's coming from a place of, well, I'm, I want – my heart is in the right place in theory, right? I want the best for you know, everybody, even if it means going about it the wrong way. Or go, you know what I mean? It's like look at the people that, again, you know, were coming after Joseph Smith his whole life. I mean how many of them were, were ex-members of the church? And how many of them honestly thought they were doing the world That's a favor exactly right. or trying to push something to make things better, thought they were doing the Lord's errand? They were convinced that Joseph Smith was a fraud, and therefore, even if they had to lie a little bit or had to kind of do some you know, some things that they knew probably were morally incorrect, it was for the bigger good. It was for the greater good, and that was to prove to the world that Joseph Smith was a fraud, right? Yeah. And so again, it's just like there's something— that that to me is the that to me is maybe one of the greater points of that whole thing, which is just like be self aware enough to know where your weaknesses are, and know that that's where you're going to get attacked. Like that's where that's where the adversary is going to come. And for people like me, who admittedly pride is definitely a weak spot in certain things, it's sometimes hard not to go. Well, if I were in charge, you know, if I were in charge, if I were in charge, I'd do that better. If I were in charge, you wouldn't have 17 little kids every fast and testimony meeting repeating the same things over and over because that's kind of creepy and it feels a little brainwashy, right? Like if I were in charge, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, and so, but the thing is like, cool. Yeah, that's, that is a me problem, right? And even if I could cite you like, well, we, we, you, we've been told not to do this over and over and over. Clearly it's not a big enough problem that, you know, that people are getting excommunicated for it, right? <laughs> But I think I'm just saying like that's 
it's like what an appealing thing to maybe for somebody to 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 receive revelation from an angel of light that says the church has gone astray because they let all of these little kids get up every fast and testimony meeting and deep down you know it's true and and I'm now going to give you the right revelation and you need to go out there and start bringing people along with you right and and unfortunately Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page both guys mentioned in here do end up following a different prophet because they believe that Joseph Smith did fall as as a prophet it, it, it's kind of take that and go the other direction although Oliver Cowdery did return and Hiram Page never denied the witness that he had until, until he died about the Book of Mormon. But if I look at this scripture and, and, and not, not looking past at what happens later on in their lives, I would say the biggest hero here in my mind is Hiram Page. Even though he was deceived or even though he's the one that, that was anxious trying to do the right thing and he thought he was doing the right thing, rather than defend this and, and say, no, I'm right, and, and pull away, he had the strength and humility to 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 realize when he was wrong, even when he was convinced he was right, and to be able to, to to be humble enough to put the rock down and to follow the prophet at least at this time. And and when we have those doubts, and when we come to the Lord, I guess what I'm trying to say is is there's no problem with having that doubt. There was no problem with Hiram trying to do what's right. But what made this excellent is how he handled it and the idea that he was willing to accept that he was wrong even when he thought he was right and, and Which having that humility. Yeah, I mean, that's a big deal. And it's, that's it's, hard. Yeah. This <laughs> is super hard. Well, I hope that I didn't take us off too much into too much of a tangent, but but I I don't know. I, I think some no. of these verses kind of speak to me a little bit on, on those on, on at least some of those levels. So what are we talking about next week? Next week is Doctrine and Covenants section 29. It's kind of a long section talking into the uh, all sorts of fun things. <laughs> all sorts of fun <laughs> things. I can't wait for that. I'll, I'll leave you on that cliffhanger. All right. Until next week. See ya. See ya.